0: Welcome back to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly, or in this case, yearly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. Today, we'll be switching things up a bit. It's our last episode of the year, and we're going to do a little bit of a look back at the stories we covered um, this year, the ones that made a particular impression on us, the trends we saw. So we're doing a little bit of a review. Maybe we're going to throw out some predictions as well. And yeah, with that said, this is what we saw in the year of 2023 in private markets. We'll start, as is tradition, with the biggest deals, but this time with our favorite deals of the year. Adam, I'm going to throw it to you first. I think you picked out a particularly tasty one. (laughs) I don't know if it's particularly
1: tasty. Um, okay, I mean, no, okay, fair point. <laughs> no, no, I guess no events to Subway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like I think the deal, the deal is interesting um, beyond the fact that, you know, it's Subway. Um, this is this. If you guys will remember, it's, you know, Roark Capital's, you know, potential acquisition of Subway for about ten billion dollars. I think the FTC started. Investigating them in the middle of November, um, given you know monopolistic or ant- antitrust concerns, I think that investigation is still ongoing um, as of you know the middle of December. I haven't seen any new news around this, so we'll see how that evolves next year. Um, I mean, I think you know the the argument here is that you know Rourke owns, they own Arby's. I think they own Jimmy John's. Um, now they could potentially own Subway. Um, and, you know, the argument being that this could have a real impact on kind of, you know, uh, competition or um, price and, you know, cost of living among some basic consumer goods. Um, you know, I think this is definitely a trend we saw throughout the year with the FTC, I think, being more heavy handed towards um, private equity in general and, you know, this certainly makes sense when, you know, the two biggest expenses, you know, we've been facing, particularly in these inflationary years is, you know, within consumer goods, but also within healthcare, which is kind of the other area the FTC has really been been more heavy handed in. Right. So I think, you know, private equity, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, presented a good sort of uh, policy or even political opportunity this year, and I don't mean that negatively, right? If if the private equity actors are, you know, disrupting the or increasing prices and and causing the cost of living crisis to be, you know, more more acute and 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 more acutely felt among you know the the population in the states, and they're doing it so in a way that's illegal, then obviously that should be investigated. Um, so anyway, my my prediction here is kind of no matter who in off who's in office next year, you know, we're going to see a lot more of this. I, I think you know inflation cost of living concerns among voters, uh, might be slightly alleviated and obviously inflation has been tamed to some degree, but I don't think this is fully under control and, and obviously will still
2: be a hot button political issue, um, into the new year as well. I think a lot of people would look at this deal, this subway deal though. And they, I mean, people have made fun of it because it seems like, you know, the idea that there's a monopoly in uh sandwich shops seems kind of ridiculous on the face of it, that they, that they've got too much market power. Uh, but when you do look into the details and you see that how much they actually do own, <laughs> there's some potential for it. But uh, there's something that seems a little bit, <laughs> a little bit light about the the particular area that they're going after. So yeah, it's I a mean, particularly good good deal to to pick out on your part.
1: It seems silly, right? Because it is Subway and it's Jimmy John's and it's Arby's. But you know, I bet you there's a substantial amount of the public, right, that kind of relies on. Eating this type of fast food probably almost on a daily basis, Um, and and if that's you know a large swath of 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 the population, then you know it it certainly should be looked at more closely. In in my opinion,
0: good stuff, Jeff. How about you? What's your favorite deal of the year?
2: Yeah, so my big deal that I'm what thought was really interesting was to see CalPERS switching up its tune and getting into venture at a time that everyone else is going the reverse direction. So CalPERS um, has basically invested uh, $4.5 billion in venture this year, um, which, you know, kind of from what we've seen so far, there's about 15% of all the venture commitments out there. And uh, this is a big change to their their normal of business since 2008 since 2008 they really haven't allocated much to venture at all obviously a really really costly mistake on their part to not be diversified right. into something that was literally in their backyard i'm sure they could have gotten into every uh one of the most the biggest most high performing um venture funds out there and now they've decided this is the moment that they're kind of turning around and changing and i just think it'll be really interesting to see how this change how this plays out i um am not you know, going to make a call. I don't know whether or not it's going to be a, a good decision on their part, but it's definitely a contrarian decision. And if they're contrarian and right, it could be a really great decision. And perhaps they could make up for the the lost decade that they had um, not investing in venture. So that was the thing I thought was really interesting. CalPERS always yeah. a bellwether. And it's interesting to see them make such a big move. And at a time when we've seen a big dislocation um, in venture where fundraising is down and Uh, It's sorely needed by by the industry, and hopefully that'll play out in their returns.
0: Yeah, I'll venture a prediction on that one, and um, say that I think the returns will be good. I think they're going to look back and think this was an excellent decision. You know, unlike many other LPs, they didn't get in while the bubble was sort of at peak prices. They waited for some of the air to come out. If all the air is out, who knows? You know, you're never going to time the exact bottom, as they say. So. I I applaud them for doing this, and it seems like they learned their lesson from two thousand eight.
2: Yeah, I feel I feel like you know I was yeah I was just chatting with my my brother who works at a family office uh, that has a you know a lot of venture that they do, but it's a uh, and I was telling him that yeah I think now is a really great time to uh, to get into venture. You know, there's nothing that in twenty in twenty twenty one what do we have crypto. You know, <laughs> right. I, think, I think AI, I think AI is the real deal. I think it's a really, you know, big and important piece of technology and a platform shift and all this. I think it will play out really, really well for the people who get into venture right now with reasonable evaluations and right. arguably a better outlook than when everything was really frothy.
0: Right. <laughs> no NFTs for CalPERS. All right, I'll I'll share my favorite now, um, and perhaps it's a bit self-serving since Tap is uh, you know a secondaries platform. But I I thought this was absolutely the year of the secondaries funds. Um, of course, you know secondaries aren't you know they're not buyout size yet, but the number of massive funds uh, that were raised this year is is astonishing. Just to go through a few, Goldman Sachs raised fifteen billion dollars for secondaries. Lexington raised an eighteen billion dollar fund. Blackstone raised one over twenty billion dollars. Pantheon, you know, they're just, just all the big firms raised these massive funds. And um it's just really impressive and it's really great to see, you know. I, I always feel like with secondaries, you do have to kind of add this little asterisk that, you know, it's not just one particular strategy, right? You can cover real estate credit, um, venture, you know, buyout. It's all kind of encompassing secondaries, but it's great to see that much capital flow into secondaries, and it's also then sort of Always interesting to see that managers are still saying the amount of dry powder isn't actually growing because there are so many opportunities to deploy the capital. So um, despite all this money that's flowing in, it's it's almost still sort of starved for capital. I love to see it. Yeah. And the, the, I think the other point to make here
1: is these are, these are not just the largest secondaries funds ever or among the largest, but they're, they're among the largest, just private equity funds raised in general. Right. So, I mean, these secondaries yeah. up there, competing with with traditional buyout as a strategy. and I think you know when we were looking back at some investor you know polling you know data, I think for at least a couple quarters last this past year, um, you know secondaries was the most popular strategy or kind of neck and neck with buyout, right? So I think you know obviously a huge year for the industry. It is remarkable that it's still largely considered to be capital constrained. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, Thomas, do you predict then that, you know, given given views around how this is capital constrained, you know, we'll continue to see these, these kind of mega funds being raised into the future, um, at least into next year and, and possibly among, you know, more, you know, even some of the less known kind of secondaries
0: investors. Actually, I do. I do. My hypothesis is that secondaries funds operate with a bit of a lag relative to, Primary funds and primary placements, right? So as PE has grown generally, I think secondaries will follow that trajectory as well, uh, albeit a few years behind, right? So I think this will absolutely continue. Okay, that wraps up our favorite big deals for the year. Now let's move on to our top topics, the kind of themes, trends that we saw as we covered stories um, over the past several months, over the past year. So some of the top trends that we're going to cover here are, of course, higher rates, the increasing impact of regulation on private markets, the penetration of PE into sports, and uh, the flight to quality. Those would be kind of the key things that we um, dive into here today. And we'll cover a lot of uh, little adjacent topics as we work our way through these, because they're, they're all really juicy trends. But of course, we have to start with higher rates. That's very much been the story this year. The Fed increasing interest rates at a a very rapid clip, and that has led many people to predict the demise of private equity, or at the very least, the end of the golden age for private equity. Basically, the hypothesis is that private equity's success was in many ways a result of decades of decreasing interest rates, which enabled the very liberal use of debt to fund acquisitions and also um, basically drove capital into private equity in search of returns banks had a very difficult year too you know because the interest rates went up so quickly right um as we svb failed first republic failed that kind of shocked the system private credit swooped in to fill the gap um you know blackrock is estimating that private private global debt will grow like crazy reaching 3.3.5 trillion in aum by year end um you know there's there's so much going on here with rates and and with um with with private equity, you know, uh, resisting its demise? Adam, take it away. Private
1: equity is not a new thing. You know, perhaps private equity as we know it today has kind of been around, I don't know, maybe since the 70s, right? And with KKR kind of being the first real kind of star of the industry. But I mean, these funds have obviously made many fortunes in, in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you know, in the 2000s. So I mean, You know, the the industry's obviously been around, it's been through cycles, it's been through various crashes. Um, You know, I think you you can certainly argue that the period from, you know, I don't know, 2009, 2010, after the the global financial crisis through, you know, kind of the last couple of years, what was perhaps unprecedented, um, and obviously the industry did benefit enormously from low rates, um, it certainly made private equity a lot easier, um, but, you know, the industry has been around for decades, so you know i i don't know i i just think it's it's obviously too early to tell um the fed raised rates a, a number of times this year um there were obviously a lot of kind of transitory shocks to to inflation and 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 things that created inflationary pressures that are now alleviating right and now we're seeing much more dovish language from the fed you know perhaps there's two, three, or four, you know, rate cuts next year. And, and, you know, we'll see how that goes into 2025. So, um, I mean, I, I don't know to, to, declare the end of the golden age or that it even was a golden age. Um, you know, it might be, be a little bit of an absurd comment. I think it's certainly harder now to find those returns in a higher interest rate environment, but, you know, like with anything, you know, things tend to be cyclical. And I think now, you know, folks, including the, you know, the most important central bank in the world, does uh, at least see, you know, flat or decreasing rates, you know, into the next year, which, you know, should obviously improve private equity um,
2: prospects at least somewhat, even if it's incremental to begin with. Yeah, I think um, that, you know, the reason why people say that, you know, is private equity just sort of this thing that started in the 70s, when if you look at a chart of rates, and you look since the, the the 80s, basically when you know it was the start of this buyout industry in the 70s and 80s. It's the the rates have been going down and down and down up until you know last year. And the question is, then people go, "Oh, well, now are we in a rising rate environment? Does that mean everything flips and goes?" I don't think we're in a rising rate environment. I don't think, think that we're in some super cycle where rates are now going to go up. You have to believe that what happened in the 70s where Volcker and, and, and all of them had to continually raise rates is going to is, is happen again in order to kind of think that we're in this sort of reverse reverse cycle um, where rates are going to be going up. I think I, I, and what we're seeing now with market reaction is just that people, the, 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 the yield curve is still inverted, meaning people think rates are going to be coming down. So I don't really see that we're going to be in some completely different environment um, for, for private equity. Um, it's not the way I see it. And for private credit as well, I, I think that, uh, uh, I think that now private credit is probably more viable than it was in the past just because people are going to rates, but it doesn't seem like a, like a super cycle type trend to me. Um, this private credit stuff, I think like it's, it's been overhyped this year is my feeling on, on private credit that, you know, while it's important and while it will, will be big. And by the way, Thomas, you said it was going to be 3.5 trillion by year end. It's 3.5 trillion by year end. (laughs) 2028. 20, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Let's be clear, which is obviously still huge. I think it's like 1.7 trillion in AUM right now. So that's a huge uh, uh, amount of growth. But uh, and 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 that might be warranted. But I think the idea that, you know, private credit is going to replace a lot of the things that banks do and, and, and all this um, it's probably been overblown this year and probably just a lot of excitement around the fact that rates exist now, that there that there is, you know, interest rates that you can um, take advantage of in, in the short end of the curve, especially and that, you know, a lot of people have been raising funds based off of that. So I don't think it's I think it's been the the, the it's been overblown the idea that private equity is dead because rates are going to keep going up forever. I don't think they are and I don't think that means private equity is dead and and um and it's been you know, sort of overblown how well private credit is going to do. So I think, you know, people just get a little carried away in the middle here of what was the, you know, last year, the steepest tightening cycle in the history of the Federal Reserve, the steepest, quickest raise in rates in the history of the Federal Reserve. It can cause a lot of dislocations.
1: Yeah. I mean, private credit's been growing very healthily over the last decade, right? I mean, it, it's not something new to 2023 or even even 2022, right? And, there's also a question of just what's the demand out there for alternative forms of, of financing, right? I mean, it's it is private credit, and it's and it's you know traditional kind of buyout, um, you know, private equity ownership of, of companies, right? I mean, both will have a role um, in the financing mix, and you know, small and medium-sized enterprises in in, in our economy in particular, I mean, rely. Greatly on private equity ownership and financing of businesses, and you know some of that will come from banks, and some of that will come from private credit funds. And I think now you know we just have more optionality, right? I mean, the frankly, the the the, the riskier businesses will take uh, you know loans from you know HPS, right, from from other types of direct lenders like that, for example, and you know less risky ones will will, will take out syndicated bank loans. Um, so you know I think now there are just more options for for financing you know these businesses.
2: I think the big story from the rate the rates going up here for me has been this sort of dislocation that happened in asset prices, and and that's caused this this lowering of the amount of um, liquidity, the amount of uh, volume of transactions in private equity, and that's what people are kind of mistaking for uh, the demise of private equity is the fact that what happened was prices of underlying companies went up so much in 2020, 2021 time period. And then when they raise rates, it causes, you know, mechanically, the price of assets is supposed to fall. But private uh, markets, they don't have a great market-clearing mechanism to have prices, you know, come into alignment on a new price and people to sort of take the medicine. And instead, you know, everyone kind of tries to extend and pretend that the the, the prices are still, uh, you know, where they were before. And what instead happens is that you have the other big thing that happened this year, which is that there's, I think, now $4 trillion, or was it $3 trillion or $4 trillion of private uh, of dry powder out mm-hmm. there in the market. $4 trillion. At, at the same time that you're supposed to be having, you know, really wanting to deploy capital that, you know, you've had a hard time raising, you should be able to deploy at great prices. No, 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 we haven't had great prices. Prices haven't come down because everyone is sort of like, uh, you know, still uh, trying to pretend that the old prices were right. And there's kind of this bid-ask spread in private equity. What the huge bid-ask spread does, where the sellers don't want to sell at the prices that the buyers are willing to buy at, is cause volumes to go down. So you're seeing a lot less activity in the market and a lot more dry powder. And um, and all of that just kind of makes the private equity market it, be in a really tough spot. Um, but, you know, that will clear. The markets will clear eventually.
1: Yeah, hey, are you saying, Jeff, that you know managers are still, and maybe investors in generally are still
2: clinging to the kind of those delusional price levels, um, and, and in, the, in the, the owners? Bounds? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the the management of the companies and the manager, the, the the fund managers as well, who own the companies, everyone is sort of locked in on these prices. They don't want to. They're also raising funds, and they don't want to to realize the losses. And so this lack of market clearing mechanism causes there to be a really big bid ask spread and therefore no one buying. And this has caused, you know, basically a freeze up in all transactions, which causes a slowdown in distributions, right? We're seeing distributions at a 12-year low out of these funds. So there was lower distributions this year than there was 12 years ago, right? On a proportional basis um, within within private equity. And so, um, you know, that's causing all sorts of liquidity issues that makes it difficult to raise. And so, you know, one thing I think we're just seeing that kind of coming out here with this big, this market dislocation is just that, um, the private markets are not a good, not as good as the public markets at clearing themselves, finding out what prices are, making sure transactions happen, and moving the heck on. And instead, it takes years for them to work out these issues because of the fact that it's opaque. That people are able to, you know, kind of uh, fudge what what the valuations are or should be. And, and in the meantime, we're seeing private, uh, seeing public markets do the absolute reverse, which is public markets they clear th- the issues. And they're now hitting all-time highs and, you know, and, and all sorts of good stuff in them. And so I think, you know, we are seeing some of the downsides of of, of uh, some of the things in private markets. And, you know, not to toot our own hoard here at top, but we, we definitely want to figure out how to help clear up some of these things around where, you know, uh, help price clear better in the private markets um, here at top. So definitely something that I think we've been keenly aware of here is like how uh, this dislocation has exposed some of the issues with price clearing in private markets and and really a lot of the issues that we're seeing come from that.
0: Good stuff. Let's move on to our next trend here, which is the increasing impact uh, of regulation on private markets. Of course, as we've just talked about, PE has grown tremendously. And with that increased size, of course, also comes some degree of regulatory scrutiny. And this year, probably more than ever, you have regulators um, poking at PE, various strategies, asking questions and wondering if it is systemically important. And if that carries certain amounts of risks with it that need to be regulated to prevent any unforeseen catastrophes.
2: Oh yeah, the big news that came, that came out this year on this front was obviously the, the SEC's fund advisor rules that came out midway through the year that then the uh, general partner, partner part of the market, you know, a lot of industry groups have really pushed back on. And, and there's a lot of them that are suing the SEC saying this is overreach. And then on the other side, though, we actually have seen a little bit of data, not as nearly as much, a little bit of data that says the LPs actually liken. So generally, it was kind of this uh, LP-friendly regulation, but it w- was regulation. And it was some of the most significant regulation of private markets that we've ever seen um, it, since Dodd-Frank. It's definitely the biggest. And uh, it also kind of feels like it's the first of of, of a whole series of regulation. I think that's why they are uh, especially want to fight it. And I think it's a massive, massive um change the industry regulation will very much change how uh private markets work currently this this particular rule doesn't actually change that much i think this one they went pretty conservative and they said look there's already sort of a a typical operating procedure around um how funds are you know reporting their um reporting things and uh you know they're doing quarterly reports and they're doing audits and things like that the sec came and said well let's just standardize that and make that you know required by everyone this is kind of the opening salvo and the setup potentially for more regulation down the road. So while I don't think this particular piece of regulation will change that much in the industry, I think that the fact that regulation by the SEC is possible and is on the agenda, I think we'll see another one, two years from now that actually does start to put more disclosures and more things in. Um, And I think that it will dramatically change how private markets are able to be um, invested in. I think it'll really be an improvement to be honest, There'll be a lot of compliance issues like there are in other areas of finance, but there will be huge new vistas opened up um, for investment from high net worth individuals and retail investors that are made possible by the fact that, you know, regulation is allowed into the industry. Overall, it will be much better for, consul- for the consolidated managers, the big, you know, superstore managers who can afford to do the regulation and it can afford to comply with all this. And and um, and I think we'll just see a maturing of the industry and regulation is part of that
0: yeah i mean i i agree i actually think this is um you know a lot there were a lot of complaints about it but i think this is ultimately something that's good for the industry just like having you know reasonable interest rates are good for a well-functioning economy which is also good for private equity you know we've heard a lot of complaints this year but overall i feel like there's actually some pretty strong tailwinds when you really look under the covers here i think the the other
1: thing to emphasize here as you mentioned jeff this really is just a codification of standard operating practice already. Um, so, you know, it seems like the real underlying strategy here for these lawsuits and and for all the, you know, kind of public, you know, opposition to this is, is really to establish precedent. Right. And, and I think that's probably on both sides, um, you know, on, on the government side or on, on the, the DOJ side, um, It will be or sorry, on the regulatory side um, with with the SEC and the other financial regulators will be to establish um, basically precedent that this is not, you know, quote unquote, arbitrary and capricious regulation, right? That when you promulgate these rules, eventually that they won't be arbitrary and capricious. And that's kind of the standard that the industry has to argue, right, that that these rules in fact are and will be. Um, I, I find that very, very hard here. Um, it's kind of hard to argue that something's arbitrary and capricious when, you know, most of the industry is already doing this, right? So, like, I think I think both sides are already trying to really draw a line in the sand. Obviously, the industry wants to prevent additional rulemaking. So if they can draw a line in the sand here kind of yeah, with these incremental changes, then obviously it makes um, more rulemaking in the future that's more invasive, you know, a lot more difficult. And then
2: it's, it, the thing for me is it's not so obvious that the industry should want to prevent um, additional rulemaking. Um, I think they would want to preserve the optionality to say, Hey, we like the rules that you're making or not, right. They'd like to have a say, and maybe that's what, what they really want, but, you know, having rules and having rules can be helpful, um, in industry specifically, I think here it can be helpful for some of the biggest players. Yeah. Well, who's, who's really arguing against this? I mean, it seems like it's, what the the venture Group. capital association of America, um, a bunch of trade groups. It's a bunch yeah. of trade groups um, that 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 are kind of arguing against it. And um, I mean,
1: it's yeah. GPs, you know. At the end of the day, this is also emblematic of the change in sort of you know bargaining power between LPS and GPs you know I mean the LP should they're they're the ones with the capital and making the commitments and they're the ones who you know could stand to benefit from more transparency perhaps right in 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 most ways so you know I think it's also
2: reflective of that I mean look I think regulation is just like it's a it's something that's going to happen and they they have the ability to do this in my opinion um they regulate they, they regulate all sorts of things in private markets already they regulate all sorts of things in all the financial markets I really don't understand why they. Couldn't be bring they couldn't be bringing it here as well. Like you said, it's it's got to be good regulation, and uh, and they need to have standards for that. But there's no reason that it's completely off balance for them, considering all the myriad of other things that they they're they're involved in. One thing I want to bring up here that's a little bit separate is just that, you know, just looking at this list so far, when we were looking at the list of all the top stories here, how big of an impact the government had in all these things, right? The first sto- set of stories that we're talking about was rising rates, right, which. Um, It's just interesting to see, like, you know, the Federal Reserve is kind of has its control in the destiny of a lot of these industries. And then with with what we're looking at here with regulation, like how big of an impact regulation um, has, whether it's, you know, what you were talking about about the uh, the FTC and Subway or a myriad of other deals. They've stopped with Figma and, um, you know, some of the deals with Microsoft and Activision, like, you know, the, you know, regulation is a bigger and bigger part of. Every industry and private markets, which has been sort of the place that everyone's been trying to run away from uh, all the regulation, they're they're kind of coming into it as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely definitely a really big story this year because it in over the long term will be the one of the things that most dramatically transforms uh, private markets over like a 10 year period will be, you know, increasing regulation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, and I'm sure Thomas will find the segue into the next line uh, or next discussion here where, you know, governmental actors are also having a, a huge impact in sports. But, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you probably would have seen a bunch of, you know, PhD thesis papers within political science departments or government departments sort of heralding the end of, of the nation state and sort of these supranational actors taking over, you um, you know what comes to mind is kind of the East Asia, you know, financial crisis, and you know how a bunch of hedge fund traders, you know, you know, possibly broke down the economies of a number of a number of countries, right, um, by speculating on their currencies. But I mean, to your point, Jeff, it actually looks like the the nation state, the government, is actually kind of stronger than ever here. Um, kind of touching, you know, everything, you know, now even, you know, more intrusively um, and sort of impacting the, you know, $20 trillion um, kind of private funds industry as well now, um, you know, more than it ever has. So, you know, per, you know perhaps, um, I don't know, I mean, it doesn't seem like government's really going anywhere. Um, it'll continue to be very, very important and drive behavior and, you know, drive the, the fortunes or the misfortunes
0: of actors in, in this space. Good stuff. Let's let's um, use that segue, Adam, and move on to the next topic, which is the penetration of PE into sports. So this year, we've seen a ton of new stuff there, including private equity, getting into everything from uh, football to American football to motorsports and F1 teams, golf, really no corner has been um, spared here. PE is kind of looking at everything more closely. And it's not just that P.E. is looking at everything more closely, but it's also that a number of sports franchises are starting to open up to the idea of private equity investments, whereas they previously might not have been. Right? That includes um, college football in the U.S., and it also includes uh, my personal favorite, German football clubs, which are now looking to let private equity investment in, uh, in hopes of basically helping them grow the franchise, grow distribution, get better um, broadcasting products, better media rights. Um, so there's there's so many ways to go with this. There's uh, also some private equity firms that have really specialized in this and have gobbled up teams left and right. Yeah, I mean more 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 than even just private equity as we
1: might like, traditionally consider. I mean it's just alternative capital seems to have flooded sports. Um, and you know I think primarily I, I mean obviously traditional private equity funds, but also you know sovereign wealth money um, and you know even celebrity money. Right. Ryan Reynolds and, and David Beckham come to mind. obviously the the Saudi piff um, in addition to all of their kind of private equity peers investing within sports. you know I think you know what, what's interesting is how much really how much conflict, all of this additional capital has actually created. Um, obviously, you know, c- capital sort of floods to you know where you know where there's competition, where there seems to be something to um, you know excel right over you know vis-a-vis your opponents. Um, and I think we you know we've seen that right, and we've seen the the Saudis start their own PGA rival. Um, we've seen them bring you know stars like Ronaldo and Karim Benzema. Um, you know, into their own leagues, right? You see Messi going and joining David Beckham in Miami. Um, And, you know, I think what's interesting is in the past, you've obviously seen, you've seen private equity, you've seen sovereign wealth money going into sort of already established leagues and sports teams, right? This is the year where it seems like different uh, competitors out there, right, to the established leagues and the established teams have actually started and, you know, want to sort of put their own stake in the ground, create their own, you know, legacies, create their own, you know, super franchises and teams, as you've seen in, you know, um, you know, Miami or in Saudi Arabia, as I mentioned. Um, so so that is, I think, an interesting change um, to sort of historical... Um, investments, which have been to try to sort of build up existing leagues or you know build up stragglers in existing leagues. Um, so I, you know, I do think we're going to continue to see more and more of this. I think, you know, these teams have have you know teams and leagues have sort of benefited from this this flood of capital and sort of this this star power. Um, so I, I I think this is a trend that's just starting. You know whether they're going to be successful and challenging kind of incumbents you know, is, you know, who knows, but I, I think this is a trend that's really only just beginning.
2: I think it's it really, you know, the trend is quite provocative because it's, you know, this area that was really um, with your owner of a team, you were actually the owner of the team. You know, you were like the proprietor of the team, you manage the team and all this stuff. And, and we're moving to, you know, more of a, a system where you might have owners that are actually purely economically oriented and, I do think that has yet to be shown that that will, it will actually play out like that. I think often the highest bidder is going to be bidding for non-monetary reasons, and I think if you look at the you know Saudi PIF, I think that Live Golf wasn't just uh, you know a monetary play that they thought they could you know make money off of this. I think this was really about you know being really you know for, at the forefront of culture and um, celebrity and all that type of um, of, of stuff. And uh, and so I I do kind of think that this that sports will continue to be this area similar to entertainment and in some ways, even venture, but not so much. Uh, that'll be this area that folks play in because it's sports, because they love it, because they want the the prestige or that, that comes along with it. And I really I, I don't think that we're really going to see sports move into uh, the type of setup where everyone is there just as an investor, because I don't think those people will pay top dollar. I think the top bidder here has non-monetary um benefits that they can get out of uh th- these investments you know like if you look yeah. at it i mean if you look because the other big story this year that i thought was really interesting was that you know college football in the u.s has you know you know a couple of years back they They allow you to pay players now. And all this is causing there's been a big shakeup in the industry where everyone has, you know, the Pac-12 is now dead, basically, and everyone's moved to the Big Ten and et cetera, et cetera. And folks are now raising private equity money potentially for their football, college football programs, which were very much like literally explicitly non-financial in the past. And they were back at academics and sort of the the glory of the school and and school pride and all that. And now we're moving into this area where is it going to be about? you know, uh the financials of of the transactions. And you know, it, I, I actually don't think it will be. I think that over the next 20 years we'll still continue to see things being most, you know, when you're investing in sports, it's mostly about that you love sports. And we've talked about this a little bit before, that I think, you know, you might be able to get new people in who love sports. You might be able to get fans to even invest in teams and have all that type of stuff happen. But I don't think you'll actually see that private equity firms um will be a very dominant player uh just for the returns, because there'll be other people who are willing to pay more.
1: Yeah, I mean the the soft power benefits of you know yeah. this kind of cultural export, right, or cultural cachet, I, I think can't really be understated. Um, I think that's that's very true. I mean, I you know, by by some measures, right, if if sort of look at alternative, you know, measures of GDP. And you, you you know, quote unquote, more accurately sort of measured, you know, the United States cultural exports, right, within sports and entertainment, for example, you know, perhaps, you know, US GDP would be 5, 10, $20 trillion higher, right? I mean, who knows, right? It's, there's obviously huge soft power considerations here, whether you're, um, you know, a local, whatever, local capital, you know, in in, in Florida and like, like the guys who sort of have been funding, you know, Miami, um, and, and brought in messy to miami or you're you know a, a middle eastern power like saudi arabia r- trying to exert more influence in the world right so i i, I,
2: or, I, I, and I think even at these private equity firms if you're yeah. blackstone if you're kkr if you're aries you know you could do a sports unit and actually it could give you guys, could give them a lot of power and Maybe even just the management gets you know, a lot of clout within these various leagues that they're involved in and stuff. And so I think we might even see within the private equity firms that some of the investing is done um, more for you know, non-monetary reasons than for monetary reasons when you actually look at why they sort of are pursuing these strategies. Uh, my feeling, though,
0: is if this investment strategy were not to have sort of sufficient returns, then it wouldn't really turn into a, an enduring trend. So
2: I actually I think... I don't think it'll be an enduring trend. I think it'll, oh, be, it'll be a minor player. They'll, they'll continue to be sort of the, the secondary players in this industry and the big players will be folks who want to own and operate teams for the excitement of owning and operating an amazing sports team.
0: So when I look back at some of the notable sort of sports franchises that have been owned by whatever billionaire over the last decade or two decades... You know, it does look like there are certainly some lighthouse returns, some um, tremendous value creations that seem to benefit from some real sort of secular tailwinds, and that also seem to have a pretty low correlation to uh, many other asset classes. So, I'm actually feeling quite persuaded that this could be a really good uh, and very alternative investment strategy.
2: It, it yeah, it, it has been historically a very good um, investment you know, area to be in, um, and under recognized and under penetrated with, you know, traditional forms of capital. And it's, you know, it's hard to underwrite a team. Um and 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 hard to do all those things. Um, but yeah, yeah I still I mean, think the, that of all the players out there who have capital, they'll that private equity will be the 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 top uh bidding um investors in the space. Yeah. I mean there's there's a surefire way to create value for
1: your team, right? It's to buy a very, very expensive, very, very famous athlete, right? I mean that that may create a lot of short-term value for you it doesn't create a successful franchise it doesn't win you championships I think that that that's very very true but I mean this is almost like um you know a little there are some parallels to you know we, we talked to earlier this year about Kim Kardashian's new fund and you know how she herself is such a brand and brings so much value um to any brand that she invests in right I mean th- this isn't so
2: different bringing yeah, like like Hard- Ryan Reynolds Saudi Arabia yeah, Ryan Reynolds, you know, he started, they, you know, he he worked with some guys who started a, some sort of, you know, a mobile, uh, I can't remember, some sort of mobile company. And then, but they, they also, you know, he, him and Rob McClendon, he bought a, a team in, in England that was sort of a no-name team. And I'm sure it's obviously paid dividends for them, but those aren't, you know, those, those guys make a bunch of money from it, but they aren't, you know, just private equity firms. Kim Kardashian has partnered, you know, has created a private equity firm, but she's not just there for, you know... Uh, she is there for just monetary, but she's not a private equity investor. So that's kind of where I, I I see the doubt. I can see it like being like venture. I can see it landing in a place where it's more like venture, which is that they're very involved in the operations, they're specialists and everything. But even within venture, there's there's a lot of this that is about sort of being on involved in these really, really big companies. Um, and they pay top dollar for it for that reason.
1: Well, last thing I'll say is it it's whales, Jeff. He he bought a team in Wales. Let's not oh, offend man. the, the, the <laughs> footballing nation. Uh, <laughs> very different from
0: England. Very good, very good. Okay, let's move on to our last topic here, which is the flight to quality that we saw in 2023. You know, with among all the turmoil, LPs have generally decided that they really want to kind of back the uh, asset classes and the managers that they've had good experiences with. And that has led to a number of geographies as well as a number of asset classes um, really having a tough time this year. this is very much a global phenomenon. So uh, of course, China is is something that we covered quite a bit on the podcast this year, right? China has introduced a number of new regulations and the US has also introduced a number of new regulations that made it difficult for LPs to deploy capital um, in China. And of course, uh, the geopolitical tensions come on top of that. Um, venture capital is another um, asset class that really on a global scale has seen a tremendous pullback right Um, it had a boom in in 2020 2021 and now in many geographies such as in Europe also in India basically venture capital funding has has plunged by by half if not by two-thirds so these are really massive declines and What we've seen kind of on the other side is that um, some really large managers have really turned into these, uh, you know, giant Walmart superstore type of managers that let uh, LPs deploy capital across various strategies um, and and really across size ranges, right? So they can really kind of go to the brand, the manager that they trust and um, deploy as much capital as they like. Adam, Jeff, you know, what, what are your takes on this trend?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's been a pullback and I think the the really one that's interesting to me is, you know, the consolidation of the number of managers and how difficult it is to start a fund one today versus 2020, 2021, you know, to start to be an emerging manager, you know, doing your fund one, even fund two, fund three, these are difficult positions to be in, you know, you're sort of uh, on a very short list of people who are going to get investment, right? So most uh, folks are looking to consolidate managers. They might not be putting more capital work. Like I said, you know their distributions are at an all-time low. They're at a 12-year low, right? So they're not getting a lot of money to go redeploy into private markets. And so they're kind of saying, hey, which of my managers am I even going to keep? You know, they're they're trying to figure out which of these, these relationships they have they're, that they're going to continue and nurture and which ones they're going to cut and and move on with. You come in and you're an emerging manager trying to get uh them to – work on your fund one, fund two, fund three, start a new relationship with them. And that conversation is, you know, usually a non-starter today. And so I think it's, that's, those peripheries are where you see the biggest pullback versus 2020, 2021, 2022, uh, the start of it. Though in those times you could go out and start a fund one. And, you know, I knew lots of people and uh, everyone knew someone who was starting a fund and it seemed like it was easy to do now it's it's difficult even if you're on your fund three and you've had great performance to strike up a new relationship with a, with a, with an LP so huge change in the industry um and uh, and 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 just a hugely difficult time if you are one of those emerging managers a lot of you know zombie funds out there that are not going to continue on um where they're gonna have to to move on
1: yeah, this is a little bit of I mean it's an amalgamation of some of the themes we've already talked about, right I mean higher higher rates and increased regulation. Um, you know trends towards consolidation of different types of business units within alternative asset management I mean all of these all of these do not you know help um, emerging managers I think the the interesting thing to note though is you know there, there was a, a quite a bit of research this year that came out that actually indicated that you know smaller niche managers um you know actually tended to outperform um you know sort of their larger counterparties so you know, who who knows really what that means, right? I mean, all research is kind of flawed to to some extent, but it it would indicate perhaps that, you know, it's not so much a flight to safety um, or to better returns. Um, It it is, that's certainly the perception. Um, So, you know, but unfortunately, perhaps some of these emerging managers or these more specialized managers, right, are are really not getting the shot they deserve uh, because some of these other big trends we've talked about.
2: I, I mean, I think it's like in public markets, right? The smaller things that are less covered, you know, you generally can make more money off of those. Um, although that hasn't really proven true with the, you know, Magnificent Seven or whatever we've seen in public markets where the the, the large caps have, have really performed. But, um, you know, generally there there's less coverage, but it takes more research, right? So in order to, to do this right. activity of finding the small managers, you got to find the good ones and weed out the bad ones. And, and all that work, it's more difficult to put money to work. Right. And so um, that, that is a, a, there are transaction costs, diff, you know, difficulties in investing in in smaller managers that a lot of these guys are frankly trying to solve for when they go to these, you know, superstores stores um, to, to, you know, do their investing.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's certainly comfort in, in a known
2: quantity. Right. And I would agree that like, I, I don't think it's, I think this flight to quality, flight to safety, it's just like a pullback, you know. Um, there's there's a pullback from anything that was sort of uh on the periphery or or on the lead on the bleeding edge or uh new things, you know, um that, that people were doing, you know, whether it's emerging markets or 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 other areas. I, I would put China, I think, you know, that you mentioned Thomas in a in a different category here because I think that isn't really like some pullback. I mean, I think that's really particular about like this decoupling specifically with China, you know, um, versus other places in the world. Um, I think there's this decoupling that's been going on this year that is quite a different phenomenon than what we're seeing where there's a pullback in emerging managers um or venture or emerging markets. Um so like I think China it's a it's a kind of a different story, maybe even deserves its own thing, but it's a it's a it's a different story that the that a lot of folks are decoupling from from China overall. Yeah, I mean, the China side of things
1: seems to be driven, you know, both by regulatory concerns and, you know, geopolitical concerns, but also performance. Um, you know, I think 2023, I almost said 2024, 2023 seems to be the year that, you know, Large institutional investors and and sort of very prominent economists have largely soured on China as an economy. Yeah. Um, that that's a big trend from, from this year that I think, you know, even in twenty twenty two, perhaps no one would have predicted. I think that the the consensus was, look, pull the COVID restrictions, and once the COVID restrictions are pulled, you know, the economy comes roaring back. Um, instead, you know that that's not what what has come to fruition right it, it instead exposed i think real structural challenges demographic challenges political challenges in the economy that have you know long term soured i think views so i mean perhaps it is a separate story less tied to kind of you know private capital um directly but you know certainly a very big
2: a very important story for the year yeah totally yeah but i mean this this retrenchment um I think this is cyclical overall, the the retrenchment that we're seeing in emerging managers and venture capital. I don't think it's like, oh, yeah, like emerging managers are dead or venture capital is dead. Not at all. I think that this is like a, a, a temporary thing as people sort of lick their wounds and, and deal with this clog up in the system that we were talking about at the start, you know, with the price uh, dislocation. And uh, once the market's clear, I think you know, more transactions will happen and people will take more risks and people will establish new relationships and people will move into new, more exciting areas they don't know about. And uh, you'll see pendulum swing back and forth on this one. So don't view it as secular, but definitely one of the big stories uh, of this year is, is this retrenchment phenomenon and this consolidation phenomenon among um, the private equity and, and private capital managers generally. Excellent.
0: Well gentlemen, let's wrap it up here. We've covered a a lot of stuff. Uh, We've covered the the key trends here of 2023. To all our listeners, we want to thank you for being with us for the past several months, for listening, and we look forward to covering more exciting stories in 2024. We wish you a happy new year, and we'll see you again in the new year. Bye-bye.